Hi guys, I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I am going to tell you about the strip search phone scam. This was a series of incidents that occurred from 1992 to 2004. A man called up a bunch of restaurants and grocery stores and claimed to be a police officer, and he would speak to the managers of these businesses and convince them that one of their employees or customers was a criminal, and he would actually get these managers to do weird things like conduct strip searches on people, supposedly on behalf of the police. These phone calls were made to numerous businesses all around the United States, but the most notable case was the one that actually led to an arrest. This happened in 2004 in Mount Washington, Kentucky. If you've ever seen the 2012 movie called Compliance, it's about this true story. On April 9, 2004, 18-year-old Louise Ogborn went to work her shift at McDonald's. Louise was a churchgoer, a former Girl Scout, and just an all-around good girl. She had taken this job at McDonald's, which paid $6.35 an hour, after her mother lost her job. She had been working at McDonald's for four months, and in that time, she did a great job and never got written up or did anything wrong. Just after 5 p.m., a man called the McDonald's store and spoke to the assistant manager, Donna Jean Summers. <laughs> Donna Summers. <clears throat> we'll just call her Donna. The man on the phone claimed to be a police officer named Officer Scott. He told Donna that he was working on an investigation into that McDonald's and he had McDonald's corporate on the other line, as well as the store manager, Lisa, who he mentioned by name. Donna recalls that she thought she could hear police radios in the background. Officer Scott gave Donna a vague description of a slightly built young woman, a young white woman with blonde hair who was suspected of theft. Donna was like, yeah, that sounds like Louise. So Officer Scott told her that she was under investigation and Louise could either be searched at the store or she could be arrested and taken to jail and be searched there. But then he kind of encouraged her to search Louise herself at the store, telling her that there weren't any police officers available at that moment to handle something so minor. Donna had never known Louise to do anything dishonest, but she thought she was talking to a police officer. So she led Louise into the restaurant's small office, locked the door, and followed the officer's instructions. So everything Donna's about to do, supposedly this guy on the phone, Officer Scott, is telling her to do. So Donna ordered Louise to remove her clothing one item at a time until she was naked. Louise was scared and shaking. She was telling them, please, I didn't do anything wrong. They gave her a McDonald's apron to cover herself with, which is barely anything. Donna then placed Louise's clothes in a bag and took them out to her car. Officer Scott said that a police officer would come by and pick them up. Donna says that she did ask him what was taking so long for police to show up, but anytime she asked him a question, he just had an answer for everything. There was another employee who was present. Her name was Kim Dockery. Kim said that Donna wouldn't tell her what was going on. But she saw Louise. She said, quote, A little young girl standing there naked wasn't a pretty sight. Kim hugged her and tried to console her. The caller told Donna not to tell Kim what was going on. Kim's shift ended after about an hour and she went home, and Donna told Officer Scott that she needed to be working the restaurant's counter. He told Donna to bring in somebody who she trusted to assist with the investigation. Donna asked one of the cooks, his name was Jason Bradley, so she told him what was going on and he went in the room to watch Louise and he took the phone call, but when the caller ordered Jason to remove her apron and describe her, Jason refused. However, 
Neither Jason or Kim tried to call the police or put an end to this. By now, Louise had been detained for an hour. Her car keys had been taken away and she was naked except for the apron. So she was scared and she didn't exactly feel like she could just run through the restaurant to get help. She was naked and like, what was she supposed to do? She also thought that she was in trouble with the law. After Jason refused to participate, Donna told the caller that she needed to get back to the counter. So he asked if she had a husband who could come watch Louise in the meantime. She said, no, I'm not married yet, but I intend to be. Supposedly, she said this giggling like she was talking to a friend. So he told her to call her fiancé. So she called her fiancé at home at about 6 p.m. His name is Walter West Nix Jr. He was a father of two, attended church regularly, and had coached youth baseball teams in Mount Washington. He was known to be this great community guy. A great role model for his kids, never even got a traffic ticket. So Donna filled Walter in and told her that she was working with the police to try to help with this investigation with this young girl who had supposedly been stealing. Officer Scott said that Louise had stolen a purse or a wallet, and he also accused her of dealing drugs. He told them that the police were searching her home at this very moment. Donna handed Walter the phone and left the office. For the next two hours, Walter would follow all of his instructions. He pulled away the apron from Louise, leaving her nude, and then described her to the caller. He ordered her to dance with her arms above her head to see if anything would shake out, like if she was hiding something in her body. He made her do jumping jacks, deep knee bends, and stand on a swivel chair, and then on a desk. Then, Walter made Louise sit on his lap and kiss him. Officer Scott said that that would allow him to smell anything that might be on her breath. When Louise started to refuse, Walter spanked her for about 10 minutes until her butt was completely red and covered in welts, just as the caller instructed him to do. Officer Scott also spoke to Louise directly and demanded that she do as she was told or face worse punishment. During the time that Walter was in the office with Louise, Donna walked in numerous times, but every time they heard her coming, Officer Scott would tell Walter to toss the apron back to Louise so she could cover herself up and just pretend they weren't doing anything. So Donna says that every time she walked in, Louise and Walter were sitting on opposite sides of the room. She was never naked. She was always covered up. However, the surveillance footage shows that at least once, Donna walked in before Walter's able to toss the apron back to Louise. There's this interview I was watching where they show Donna that footage and they're like, it's clear that you walk in and she's nude, and then Walter tosses her the apron. And all of a sudden, Donna's lawyer, who's off stage, gets up and starts yelling, Nope, nope, we're not talking about that. And she puts a halt to the interview. Every time Donna came in, Louise begged her to let her go. Donna says that this wasn't true. She said that Louise was always calm, and she didn't seem scared or frightened at all. But if you watch the surveillance video, you can see there are moments where she looks like she's crying, and she puts her head on Donna's shoulder, and it looks like she's pleading with her. After Louise had been in the office for about two and a half hours, she was ordered to kneel on the brick floor in front of Walter and unbuckle his pants to give him oral sex. She cried and begged Walter to stop. She said, no, I didn't do anything wrong, this is ridiculous. But Walter told her that he would hit her if she didn't. At a point, Louise started to dissociate. 
she kind of disconnected. Like she said, her soul kind of left her body and left her there feeling numb. And that feeling's not uncommon in victims of sexual abuse. They kind of disconnect to protect themselves from the pain. Kind of like if you heard my episode on Roman Polanski, the victim Samantha recalls a very similar experience. Louise said that the caller would also tell her directly that she needed to do as she was told if she wanted to keep her job and avoid further punishment. And she physically felt trapped. Like, not only is she naked and doesn't have her phone or her car keys, but Walter had a good 145 pounds on her and was nearly a foot taller. So she really was afraid for her life. Eventually, Officer Scott allowed Walter to leave under the condition that they find somebody to replace him. Walter left, drove a few blocks to his home, and immediately called his best friend and told him, I've done something terribly bad. So Donna now needs to find somebody to replace Walter, and she spotted the restaurant's maintenance man, Thomas Sims, who was off-duty, but he had stopped in the restaurant to get some dessert. But she trusted him, so she asked him to go into the office and watch Louise. Thomas was absolutely shocked by what he saw, just this naked young girl trying to cover herself up with an apron. Donna handed him the phone, and the caller again told him to take her apron and describe her. And Thomas was like, fuck that. He was like, something is not right here. And that's when Donna was finally like, oh my god, I think you're right. So Donna finally gets a light bulb and calls up her manager, Lisa. And she's thinking that she's going to call them and Lisa's going to know all about this investigation because supposedly Officer Scott is on the other line with her. But Lisa had actually been at home sleeping this whole time. That's when Donna realized that she had been tricked. The caller then abruptly ended the phone call. An employee dialed star 69 before another call could ring in so that they could find the caller's telephone number. See, back in the day before we had caller ID, if you wanted to know who called you, you had to hit star 69. But that would only tell you the very last person that called you, so they had to do it real quick before somebody else called. Donna was now hysterically apologizing and pleading for forgiveness from Louise. Louise was freezing and shaking and just absolutely stunned to the point that when they wrapped her up in a blanket, she asked, do I need to come to work tomorrow? Of course they told her, no, take as much time off as you need. Louise, shivering and wrapped in a blanket, was finally released from the office after about three and a half hours. The police came to the restaurant and arrested Walter for sexual assault, and they began their investigation on the perpetrator of the phone calls. Later in her deposition, Louise said, I was bawling my eyes out and literally begging them to take me to the police station because I didn't do anything wrong. I couldn't steal. I'm too honest. I stole a pencil one time from a teacher and I gave it back. Later that same evening, Donna went back and watched the surveillance footage and saw everything that Walter had done to Louise. She called off their engagement, and according to her attorney... Donna hasn't spoken to him since. It didn't take long for Mount Washington police to find out that this had been going on for a while, all over the country, at all kinds of different restaurants. In fact, all they had to do was conduct a simple internet search to find out that this has been going on for over a decade all over the country. The caller targeted stores in small towns and rural communities, areas where managers were more likely to be trusting. Most were fast food restaurants where the victims were young and inexperienced, and assistant managers were likely to be working without supervision. The earliest reports happened in North Dakota and Nevada. By the end of 2000, there were more than a dozen reports. By the end of 2003, there were nearly 60. 
On November 30, 2000, a call was made to a McDonald's in Litchfield, Kentucky. The caller told the manager that a customer was a sex offender and he needed her help in catching him. He convinced the manager to take her clothes off and promised her that the moment the customer tried to molest her, police would bust in. After the fact, when she was asked why she didn't call the local police, she answered, Well, I thought that was the police. On May 29, 2002, an 18-year-old girl went to work on her first day of work at McDonald's. Within the first hour of her shift, she was forced to strip, jog naked, and assume a series of embarrassing poses, all at the direction of a caller on the phone. On January 26, 2003, at an Applebee's in Davenport, Iowa, the assistant manager received a phone call and went on to conduct a degrading 90-minute strip search of a waitress at the direction of the caller. In February 2003, a call was made to a McDonald's in Hinesville, Georgia. The call was taken by a female manager. The caller said that he was a police officer and he was working with the director of operations for the restaurant's upper management and convinced the manager to take a female employee into the woman's bathroom and strip search her. She also brought in a male employee who conducted a body cavity search of the woman, supposedly to find out if she was hiding any drugs. On June 3, 2003, in Juneau, Alaska, a call was made to a Taco Bell. The man said he was working with the company to investigate drug abuse at the store, and he had the manager pick out a 14-year-old customer and then strip her and force her to perform lewd acts. July 2003, a Winn-Dixie grocery store manager in Panama City, Florida, received a phone call instructing him to bring a female cashier, who matched the description that the caller had provided, into an office where she was strip-searched. The cashier was forced to undress and assume various poses as part of the search. In March 2004, a female customer at a Taco Bell in Fountain Hills, Arizona, was strip-searched by a manager who had received a call from a man claiming to be a police officer. By April 2004, supervisors had been duped in at least 68 stores in 32 states. The targets included a dozen different restaurant chains. Managers of at least 17 McDonald's stores around the nation had been conned by that time, and the company was already defending itself in at least four lawsuits stemming from these phone calls. For some reason, that memo just didn't reach this one McDonald's in Mount Washington, Kentucky. So the police started investigating, and they realized that all the phone calls pretty much followed a pattern, only deviating slightly. The detective from the Mount Washington Police Department who was working the case was named Buddy Stump, he had actually only been working as an investigator for a few weeks when he got that call. When he saw the surveillance footage of what had happened to Louise, he was furious. He said, it burned me up that this happened to an 18-year-old girl. None of the other calls were actually as long or involved as many people as this one in the Mount Washington McDonald's. The police initially suspected that the caller was calling from a payphone, probably near the McDonald's, somewhere he could see both the McDonald's and the police station, but they later found that the call originated from a supermarket payphone in Panama City, Florida, using a prepaid calling card. The largest retailer of these calling cards was Walmart, so they contacted the police in Panama City about it, and the Panama City police gave Officer Stump a little bit of interesting news. There was another officer from West Bridgewater, Massachusetts, that was hot on the same trail. This was Detective Sergeant Vic Flaherty, he had been assigned to lead a task force investigating the crimes after the caller hit four Wendy's in the Boston suburbs on one night in February 2004. 
Flaherty had already traced a calling card that was used in some of the phone calls back to one of the Walmarts in Panama City, but unfortunately, that store's cameras was pointed towards the store's parking lot, so you could only see people who were coming in and out of the store. So Stump from Kentucky and Flaherty from Massachusetts worked together and they were able to locate surveillance footage showing the purchase of a calling card at a different Walmart in Panama City. And at that store, the cameras were actually focused on the registers. It was purchased at 3.02 p.m. at another Walmart in Panama City on April 9, 2004, just hours before it was used to call the McDonald's in Mount Washington. The footage showed the purchaser was a white man, about 35 to 40, with glasses and black hair slicked back. He was wearing a correctional officer's uniform, and it seemed to be from this private security firm called Corrections Corporation of America. They were able to find the same man on Flaherty's video entering the other Walmart, and they could see that he was wearing the same jacket, so that way they were able to produce a front and back composite image of the suspect. They went down to the correctional facility and they showed the composite to the warden, and he identified the man as David R. Stewart, a guard who was working on the swing shift. David was a married father of five who worked as a mall security guard, and he had been working as a prison guard for the last 11 months before his arrest. Stewart denied making the calls, but when he was confronted, he started to sweat profusely and shake uncontrollably. He also asked, was anybody hurt? And said, Amen, it's over. Stewart insisted that he'd never bought a calling card in his life, but when the detective searched his house, they found a calling card that had been used to call nine restaurants in the past year, including a call that was made to a Burger King in Idaho Falls on the same day that one of the managers there was scammed. In Stewart's home, police also found dozens of applications for police department jobs, hundreds of police magazines and police-style uniforms, guns, and holsters. For this reason, it's believed that Stewart fantasized about being a police officer. Mount Washington Police Department became the first department to charge Stewart. Officer Stump drove to Panama City to arrest him on June 30, 2004. Stewart was eventually brought to Bullet Circuit Court, where he was charged with solicitation to commit sodomy and impersonating a police officer, both felonies, as well as soliciting sex abuse and unlawful imprisonment both misdemeanors. He pleaded not guilty. He was released on a $100,000 bond pending his trial on December 13th. His bond was posted by his brother, C.W. Stewart, a retired police officer from New York. On October 31st, 2006, Stewart was acquitted of all charges. Both the defense and the prosecution attorneys speculated that a lack of direct evidence, like a recording of the caller's voice, might have led to the jury finding him not guilty. However, police did say that after Stewart was arrested, the phone calls stopped. Louise Ogborn started going to therapy and taking medication for post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. She began suffering from panic attacks, severe insomnia, and nightmares about a guy attacking her. According to her therapist, she was riddled with depression and anxiety, and she was forced to switch from one antidepressant to another and then a third and a fourth before she finally found the one that worked and found some relief. In a lawsuit she filed against McDonald's later on, she testified, I can't trust anyone. I push people out of my life because I don't want them to know what happened. She graduated high school, but she was too shaken to enroll at the University of Louisville, where she had planned to study pre-med. 
Her therapist said that she was dealing with a lot of issues of shame, feeling contaminated and dirty, and just questioning herself. And she had difficulty making and maintaining friendships because she wouldn't allow anybody to get close to her. The other employee who was there, Kim Dockery, she was transferred to work at another McDonald's location. Walter Nix pleaded guilty to sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, and unlawful imprisonment. The judge agreed to a plea deal for Walter in exchange for his testimony against David Stewart. Due to the level and length of his involvement in the physical crimes, Walter was sentenced to five years in prison. Donna, the assistant manager, was initially suspended and then later fired for violating one of McDonald's rules that barred non-employees from entering the office. A couple weeks later, she was indicted on a charge of unlawful imprisonment. Three years after the incident, still undergoing therapy, Louise Ogborn sued McDonald's for $200 million for failing to protect her during her ordeal. She contended that McDonald's, a $19 billion company, failed to warn Mount Washington's employees about the hoaxes, even though the company and its franchises were already defending lawsuits in Georgia, Ohio, Utah, and elsewhere in Kentucky. Louise's lawyers said, This suit is about failure to warn, failure to train, failure to supervise. McDonald's had apparently sent a 10 to 15 second voice message to every store in the region about the scam phone calls about a week before this happened in Mount Washington, but it didn't mention anything about strip searches for one. The company also had a plan to send warning stickers to be placed on the headset and on the cradle of the phone in every store, but they had failed to execute that plan. Louise's lawsuit also named Donna Summers and Kim Dockery as defendants, saying that they forced Louise to remain imprisoned in the nude for over four hours. Kim Dockery declined to be interviewed, although in the court papers she denied any wrongdoing and said that Summers had kept her completely in the dark about what was going on. Donna filed her own complaint against McDonald's, alleging that the incident would not have occurred if she had been properly warned. She declined to be interviewed, but in her deposition, she angrily asked how McDonald's could have failed to spread the word. She sued McDonald's for $50 million, saying, You've destroyed three lives. Hope you're happy. McDonald's sued Donna back and also sued Walter Nix Jr. They stated that McDonald's clearly noted in their employee manual that they had a policy against strip searches. McDonald's lawyer said, The employees didn't read it, and that's all we can say. McDonald's team insists that they did everything else that every other restaurant did, maybe even more. McDonald's also blamed Louise for what happened to her, saying that her injuries, if any, were caused by her failure to realize the caller wasn't a real police officer. This poor girl. When they were questioning her during a deposition, they suggested that even though she had no clothes, she could have walked out of the office, but she stayed there voluntarily to clear her name. They said, did it ever occur to you to scream? Louise declined to be interviewed on the advice of her lawyers. Her therapist said that she followed orders because her experience with adults has been to do what she's told because good girls do what they are told. I watched an interview with Louise where she's explaining, my parents taught me that when an adult tells you to do something, you don't question it, you just do what you're told, no questions asked. Louise Ogborn won a $6.1 million verdict against McDonald's, and the judgment was upheld by the Kentucky Court of Appeals, which said the company's legal department was fully aware of the hoax calls to its restaurants, yet its management team made a conscious decision not to train or warn employees or the managers about the calls. They also awarded Donna with $400,000. The jury had decided that McDonald's and the unnamed caller were each 50% at fault for the abuse to which Louise was subjected. 
In November 2008, McDonald's was also ordered to pay $2.4 million in legal fees to the plaintiff's lawyers. McDonald's then appealed to the Kentucky Supreme Court. While its petition was pending in 2010, Louise settled with McDonald's for $1.1 million and abandoned her claim for punitive damages. After the court's decisions, McDonald's revised its manager training programs to emphasize awareness of scam phone calls and protection of employee rights. Stewart, a.k.a. Officer Scott, has always declined to be interviewed, but he wrote a letter responding to Luis's lawsuit in Bullet Circuit Court, where he said, I received your notice, but I'm in no way responsible. I feel bad for your loss because I am a victim as well. I lost my job, my home, and my car all over something I did not do. His lawyer said that he's not even bright enough to pull off these hoaxes. He said, Based on numerous conversations with my client, I don't believe he is persuasive or eloquent enough to convince somebody to do these preposterous things. Ultimately, of the 70 confirmed locations where the calls triggered strip searches, 53 were fast food restaurants and 9 were sit-down restaurants. And the caller wasn't always successful. Phone records showed that he sometimes called as many as 10 stores before finding one where the manager would take his bait. Some of the managers cried as they carried out his orders but others were pretty zealous as they did as they were instructed. At this one Burger King, a supervisor was so intent on finishing a strip search of a 15-year-old girl in 2001 that when the girl's father went to pick her up from work, he had to jump over the counter to end her humiliation. At another Burger King, a manager was strip searching an 18-year-old, and he fought off the worker's mother and boyfriend so strenuously that the state police had to be called. And the phone calls got more and more perverse over time. In 2003, at a McDonald's in Georgia, a 55-year-old janitor was told to put his finger inside the vagina of a 19-year-old cashier, supposedly to look for contraband. In 2004, at a Sonic restaurant, the caller convinced a 16-year-old manager to perform oral sex on a 21-year-old male cook, and then got the cook to strip search the manager. A Chicago lawyer named Craig Anunziata who had defended 30 franchises that were sued after these scams, said that every manager he interviewed genuinely believed that they were helping police. He said they weren't trying to get their own jollies. Many of the supervisors were fired, and some of them were divorced by their spouses. Others required counseling. Of course, there's a lot of discussion about whether the managers were wrong to do this or if it was just human nature. Another lawyer said, you don't have to be Phi Beta Kappa to know not to strip search a girl who was accused of stealing change. A Fox commentator asked how the managers who went along with this could be so colossally stupid. A federal judge noted that even though the incidents were triggered by some pervert, the managers still had a responsibility to use common sense and avoid falling prey to such a scam. On the other end of that, psychological experts say that it's human nature to obey orders no matter how evil they might seem. And as an example, he points to the Milgram experiment. This was an experiment done at Yale where, where there was a guy sitting there and all these students were told that they needed to like push a button to shock him every time he made a mistake. So they would increase the voltage each time where the person would get shocked more and more. In reality, the person getting shocked was an actor and wasn't getting shocked at all. Yet nearly two-thirds of the subjects gave what they believed were paralyzing jolts to a pitiful protesting victim just because an authority figure had commanded them to do so. There was, a, there was a guy in a white coat that was like telling them to increase the voltage and keep shocking him. That was important, I'm sorry. 
Anyway, Milgram wrote, With numbing regularity, good people were seen to knuckle under the demands of authority and perform actions that were callous and severe. Dr. Thomas Blass said, Once you accept another person's authority, you become a different person. You are concerned with how well you follow out your orders rather than whether it is right or wrong. However, it is important to note that one-third of the participants in the Milgram study refused to shock the individual. So that also says something. So the Milgram experiment might help explain why supervisors went along with the caller, but it doesn't absolve them of responsibility. Just like how there were some managers at some of the restaurants who refused to go along with the caller's orders. Another experiment that's not quite the same, but it still has a lot to do with this thing about authority figures, is the, the Stanford Prison Experiment, where they basically had this class of psychologists, and they built this like fake prison in the basement of the, of the school. And some of the students were going to be correctional officers, like prison guards, and the other half was going to be prisoners. This experiment ended up getting shut down after like less than a week because people really got power hungry. Like the correctional officers did start to like, like lose sight of the whole project and they just abused their, I mean, classmates. And the classmates, I mean, became total prisoners. Like they had, they had no option but to do what they were told because they were getting abused. It's a crazy experiment, but like look into it. It's just really interesting how once you're put in those roles, it's like everything changes. Another interesting point, there's a Canadian sociologist who wrote a book called Making Fast Food from the Frying Pan into the Fryer. She concluded that the most prized trait in fast food workers is obedience. She says, the assembly line process very deliberately tries to take away any thought or discretion from workers. They are appendages to the machine. Along with that, a private detective said, you and I can sit here and judge these people and say they were blooming idiots, but they aren't trained to use common sense. They're trained to say and think, can I help you? The caller was unusually persuasive, according to workers across the country who had spoken to him. He was calm and had an authoritative demeanor and sounded just like a police officer. He sprinkled law enforcement jargon into every conversation and he absolutely did his homework. He researched the names of the regional managers and the local police officers, and he would just, like, name drop to bolster his credibility. He called some restaurants in advance and somehow ended up obtaining names and descriptions of his victims so that he could accurately describe them later. Donna said that Officer Scott knew the color of Louise's hair as well as her height and her weight. He even described the tie that she was wearing. Although, like, don't they all wear the same tie at McDonald's? I don't know. But still, this guy found this stuff out ahead of time. This guy was so precise that around the country, detectives just thought that he must have been, like, watching from across the street with binoculars. But later, they said that he was just a master of deception and manipulation. For example, there was one occasion where he was on the phone with a 17-year-old victim in a Burger King, and she started crying, and he told her, he told her to, quote, be a good actress and pretend like it doesn't bother you so the manager doesn't feel so bad about what he has to do to you. The same mistake that Donna made was unfortunately made by 60 other people in the country. Oh, and going back to that experiment at Stanford University, I knew there was a reason that I was thinking about that. The psychologist who conducted that experiment, his name was Philip Zimbardo, and he even said that the caller was, quote, very skilled in human psychology, he may have even read about Milgram. 
a milgram was the first experiment I just told you about, where they shocked the person. Stewart was never indicted for any other phone call other than the one in Mount Washington. Some of the managers of these stores, though, the ones who took the calls and followed, the, followed his instructions, they were charged with crimes. Because in those cases, they couldn't directly link Stewart, but the managers, you know, unfortunately were caught in the act of doing something. They just couldn't link it to Stewart. But in most cases, these managers would end up being acquitted. You want to know what my final thoughts are? And this is not based on science or anything. This is solely what I'm thinking. We all have that thing inside of us that tells us to feel guilty or to feel icky when we do something morally wrong. It's a thing that, like, psychopaths lack. That thing that tells you to stop. You know, you can, you might think about it, but there's something inside of you that tells you this is wrong. So I'm thinking with the Milgram study, they said two-thirds of the people continued to shock the people. The fact that there is an authority figure there instructing you to do this makes you think this is okay. Like anything you do wrong, it's fine. You're doing a science experiment. They're like, okay, well, this guy might be getting shocked, but whatever, you know, somebody, some kind of authority is taking care of this and they know what's, what's too much for this guy. They know better than I do and they just trust it. Maybe it's the associated threat with you not following directions. Maybe that's more what it is. People are actually fearful. Like maybe there's some people with an underlying fear of the government or something or of God punishing them if they don't do what they're told, you know, or like poor Louise who just grew up being told to do whatever you're told. Anyway, that's just my two cents. Something interesting I didn't realize, if you guys are fans of Law & Order Special Victims Unit, there was an episode that was based on this case where Robin Williams plays the caller. I'm going to go watch that like right now. I'm going to link a video to BrokenLimelight.com under this episode's page where you can see interviews from Donna Summers and the psychologist Zimbardo. And there's also some footage from that day. So be warned because it is kind of graphic. I mean, it's, it's censored so you can't see her, but you can tell that she's naked and you can see kind of what she's doing. There's a part where Donna's being interviewed and the guy's telling Donna, you can see in the video that she's crying and she's pleading with you. And Donna was like, she wasn't crying or begging when I was in the room with her. But like, you can see it on the footage. And like, Donna even hugs her and comforts her for a moment. All right, guys, well, don't forget to check out brokenlimelight.com so you can see those videos and pictures of this case. I also list all my sources under there. Feel free to leave a comment for that episode, or if you have any questions, I'm happy to try to research it for you. If you have suggestions for future cases, reach out to me. Send me an email. It's ddwest at brokenlimelight.com. You can also leave me a review on there. You can send me donations for beer money. And sometimes I'll give you a little sneak preview of the future cases I have coming up. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye-bye. know my dogs Jude and Eleanor Rigby. Well we just started getting in BarkBox and I'm telling you your dogs will love you. No more are they angry at the mailman. No more I say. It's like a box of dog joy that's delivered every month and each box tells a different story with different themed toys, treats, and photo worthy props. 
Typically what we get in each box is a couple of toys, a couple of treats, and a chew, but you can actually tailor fit your box to fit your dog's needs. Guys, I'm telling you, your dogs will love you, even more than they already do. So try it out, and if you use my link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is a $35 value. So just head to BarkBox.com slash Broken Limelight and get started on your first BarkBox today. Nailed it, Jude. Today's episode is brought to you by Hunt a Killer. Hunt a Killer is a monthly mystery subscription box that's truly one of a kind. It's basically like a true crime case in a box. It comes with case files, codes to decipher, detailed backgrounds about the suspects and the victims. There's evidence for you to evaluate. It tells an immersive story of a whole crime case from beginning to end. It's kind of like an escape room in a box. You can do this by yourself, or you can team up with a buddy, or you can do it for like a game night or even a date night. You can take a little break from technology and immerse yourself fully into this box. Or if you prefer to be a more high-tech investigator, you can join online communities and talk to other Hunt a Killer players about clues and stuff. Hunt a Killer also shares part of the proceeds to the Cold Case Foundation, so your purchase actually helps with real-life cold cases. The best news is that Broken Limelight listeners get 20% off of their first subscription box. So go get started now at huntakiller.com and don't forget to use the code BROKENLIMELIGHT to get your 20% off. That's Broken Limelight, all one word.